But it's good to be with you on this lovely Lord's Day. Uh, we're continuing in our teaching series in 1 Corinthians. Um, Correcting Carnality in Christ Church has been the title of this series. <clears throat> in the previous section, which was chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, Paul reminded the Corinthians of some of the examples he had set during his initial visit when he first planted this church. When he came to town, he chose not to adopt the Greek cultural standards for teaching and preaching in an effort to make himself more relatable, make the gospel more palatable, uh, make his ministry more appealing. He decided as he came in just to preach the simple gospel with simple words. His teaching was deliberately devoid of all lofty speech and eloquence and fancy philosophical techniques. Not because this great man of God lacked any skill, he had plenty of skill, but because he was determined to present the testimony of God, the gospel, with simple clarity so that those who were listening, those who God converted, would uh, their faith so that it would be planted or resting not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And that was chapter 2, verse 5. In the next section, Paul defines what true wisdom is in an effort to dissuade the Corinthians from placing themselves under the local pseudo-wise philosophers and their carnal false teachings. Uh, we won't have time this morning to, to look at everything that Paul wrote about true wisdom uh, in the rest of chapter 2, so I'll be dividing this section into two to three parts, just depending on how the Spirit leads me. Uh, I'll give you over the course of however many sermons, three C's. And we're going to focus on the first one today in verses 6 to 9. If you're not there already, could you please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. That will be our text for this morning. I'd like to pray as we begin to get to work. Lord, we humble ourselves now and ask that your spirit move in power in this room and more importantly in our hearts and our minds. And Lord, we pray that, uh, that this sermon today, which is really just your text, uh, we pray that it would not fall on deaf ears or stony hearts or any of that, Lord, that you've already prepared the soil for a reception of this, for a clear hearing of it, and to receive it in humility and to apply the things that you have, you are gifting us through your grace and your word this morning. We pray that you are honored and glorified. We pray that you begin to teach us about true wisdom, and that's kind of a weird thing to say, Lord, true wisdom. There really is just wisdom, but we have to make a distinction between true wisdom and false wisdom because there's no shortage of false wisdom. When we talk about true wisdom, this is wisdom that is yours, that is found in the Word. That's what we mean by that, Lord. So just help us to know that and understand that and to apply what we learn today. We pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. You pick up where we left off last Sunday, looking at our first C. As I said, we'll only get to this one today. The first thing that Paul describes as he begins to talk about true wisdom as opposed to the false wisdom in that Corinthian community, the first thing that he describes is the character 
of true wisdom. The character of true wisdom, and that is represented in this text. That is kind of the totality of what he talks about in verses 6 to 9. We'll pick it up at verse 6 because we've got to break up the verses because they're just jam-packed with the goodness of the Lord. Verse 6, he says this. Next thing he says to the Corinthians, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Stop there. The first half of this verse, or the first portion of this verse, Paul identifies the first character trait of true wisdom. He says that it is imparted. It is, meaning it is given from one to another. He says, we do impart wisdom. So now we know that wisdom is something that has to be given. In other words, it's not something that comes naturally to us. It's not something that we naturally possess. It is something that has to be given to us. That's the first character trait. It's not just hanging out there. And if we can work through enough philosophers and, and all of these different things and resources that we can somehow impart it to ourselves. It is something that has to be given to us. And uh, he says, we, notice that, we. Who was he referring to when he said we? Is he talking about all Christians? No, he's really kind of focused on he and the other apostles. And I would say any real or true teacher, Bible teacher in any church, those are the, the, the men that, that God has ordained or called to impart his wisdom to others. And in this context, the immediate context, he's speaking of himself. He's speaking of the other apostles. In fact, he's speaking of the same men who were, you know, identified in chapter 1, those whom these people were following, Paul and Cephas and Apollos and obviously Jesus, but that was not the right view of Jesus there. So it is imparted by those who preach and teach accurately and rightly by the apostles who were of old and any teachers like Apollos. It's these faithful men who were in the business of imparting true wisdom. What Paul is essentially saying is that true wisdom is found among the true teachers and preachers in the church, not at the Acropolis among the pseudo-wise pagan philosophers. Again, the Corinthians had this interest in Greek philosophy. They liked the eloquence of it. They liked the skill of the philosophers and now they are tempted, if not already going, to the Acropolis to try to gather some additional wisdom that might help them in their faith walk. And Paul is saying very clearly here, you can go to the Acropolis all you want. You're not going to find it there because it's not among those types of teachers. It is we that impart it to you. And he's not boasting for the apostles. It's just very clearly he understands where... New Testament wisdom or, or any kind of biblical wisdom comes from. It's coming through these apostles, these teachers, preachers, prophets. So this, he's clearly making kind of like a dividing line here, like the Acropolis. It's not there. It's here in our churches. Now, a question we have to ask is, okay, so if it's imparted by these legitimate teacher, preacher, apostle, what have you, who is it imparted to? Who is it imparted to? Who receives true wisdom? Is it 
Just anyone in a local church? Well, not necessarily. Paul says we impart it to the mature. We impart it to the mature. What does that mean? Does that mean the person who's been walking with Jesus for 42 years and has an incredibly robust theology and he's very mature in his stat? No, it doesn't mean that because you can have people in a church for 40 years and still barely even know who Jesus is. He's not talking about how much time is served, like it's some kind of a prison thing here. The Greek word for mature is teleos, and it is usually in the New Testament translated as perfect, as perfect. And we see that in Matthew 5.48, be teleos as your father is teleos, be perfect as your father is perfect. And uh, so what he's saying is, is that this wisdom is imparted to those who are, in a sense, mature or Perfect. Now that spins me out because I know I'm not perfect, which means I probably am never going to be the recipient of any sort of wisdom here. I'm in big trouble. We're all in big trouble. But that's not really the meaning of it here. It's just used. Perfect is an English word used to render this down. What he's actually saying, what the meaning here is, mature means, it, it describes in the Greek somebody that is complete, whole, or without blemish. That's really what it means. Somebody's complete, whole, or without blemish. Now, that sounds a lot like perfect, right? Because that's probably the definition of perfect. But what Paul is doing here is he's not using it to describe the totality or even mentality of a man or woman in Christ. He's talking about uh, someone who is a person of faith. He's talking about faith is really what he's talking about. It's the faith of a person. What he's saying here is the person who is trusting only in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation, that is a mature person in this category of maturity here. Someone who is, who is only trusting in Jesus Christ for their salvation. In other words, they're not, they're not counting on faith in Christ plus their own works or deeds. They have a singular view of justification. It's by grace alone through faith alone. So the mature believer here, according to Paul, is one who is trusting only in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. They're not counting on their works. They're not counting on their deeds. They're not counting on Mary. They're not counting on anyone else. It's all aimed at Christ. That is the mature person. Now, we understand, I think we know, we're smart enough to know that just because somebody has that view of faith doesn't necessarily make them spiritually mature in every other way. So we know that that's not what he means here. He's not talking about an overall spiritual maturity or perfection. It is a blemishless faith. What is a blemishless faith? That's a hard word for me to say. My tongue got hung up. I need more coffee. What is a blemishless faith? It is a faith that is resting entirely in the power of God. What did he just say in verse 5? He's not, it's a person who's not trusting in the wisdom of men. It is a person who is trusting in the power of God as displayed through the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate Superman. Literally, that's what he's saying. That is the mature person. They're trusting only in Christ. That's the teleos person. So, therefore, he or she, this person he's describing, that is the blessed recipient of this wisdom that is imparted by these true teachers. 
They're the ones that receive it. In other words, it is freely given by God to them through faithful teachers and preachers. But those who are divided in their minds, thinking that they must contribute to the finished work of Jesus Christ for their salvation, they are, on the contrary, or the opposite, they are immature. And instead of receiving, you know, instead of receiving true wisdom, what happens to them? They are, as Paul describes in Ephesians 4.14, blown about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by the craftiness and deceitful schemes. So the mature person is trusting only in Christ. They receive wisdom. The immature one is trusting in Christ plus something else, Jesus plus. And instead of receiving wisdom, they get blown about by every kind of theological thought, by everything that the papacy tells them to do, by everything that people tell them to do. Add this, add this, add this, add this. They're like great mathematicians. They just keep adding to the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. That, that, that's not somebody who I tend to think of as immature. That's someone who's lost. But in this context, it's a maturity and immaturity issue. It has to do with faith. True wisdom is imparted to settled, mature brother and sister believers. To true believers. That's a true believer. One who is trusting only in Christ is a true believer. One who is trusting in more than Christ is not a true believer. Plain and simple. They are accursed. Galatians 1. Anyone who adds anything to the gospel, to the work of Christ, is accursed. That's why we do need to get friendly with Roman Catholics in the most loving way and help them understand what their Bibles teach and not the extra ten books. We tend to think of, of Roman Catholics as mean, being kind of, kind of Christian. But the moment that a person, no matter what their denominational title is, the moment a person adds to the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ for our justification, for our sanctification, for our salvation ultimately, the moment somebody does that, they have deviated and went away from this book. They're outside of the bounds of orthodoxy. So that heightens our seriousness about this matter and it should fill us with a love and concern for Roman Catholics and others because their souls are in peril if they're trusting in, in anyone other than Jesus Christ. The mature are the ones who get the wisdom. And you notice in these circles where it's not just Jesus, they claim that they're about Jesus, but it's, we know that it's not just about Jesus. We know that that's not the only kind of ignorance that's in those circles, is it? They've got all kinds of funky beliefs crazy stuff. And that's how they are blown about, sucked in and blown about by every crazy, man-centered, man-created, satanic, demonic wind of doctrine. True believers are trusting only in Christ. They're not trusting in anyone else. It's just Him. They put it all on Him. All their faith rests in the power of God as displayed in Jesus Christ. If that's you, this wisdom, this true wisdom that we speak of this morning is imparted to you. It has been and it will be. If it's not you, then you're not going to get it. You'll get more of the world's wisdom. And the second part of this verse, Paul describes a second character trait. He says, it is not a wisdom of this age. He's talking about the wisdom they impart, the apostles and true teachers. Uh, it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age. 
Well, what he's telling us here is that its, its origin is not here. It does not come from earth. It does not come from the Acropolis. It does not come from our colleges. It does not come from our professors. It does not come from gender studies. It doesn't come from anything here on earth. It is foreign. Just as we have a foreign righteousness that, that, it, that is how we are justified and accepted by God, the wisdom that we receive is equally foreign. It is not of this world. It is not from this world. It doesn't exist here unless God puts it here. It's not here. And that's, that's exactly what he's saying. The stuff that we present and impart to people, it's not what you're trying to get at the Acropolis. It's not what you're trying to get through Oprah. It's not what you're trying to get through Rob Bell or Joel Osteen or any of the other charlatans. That's not where you'll find it. It's not something that we impart. We impart the real deal, the true stuff. True wisdom is not derived from any past, present, or future age. Nor does it come from the earthly rulers of these ages or any ages. It has no fountainhead here. It comes from above. Its fountainhead is God alone. As it is written over and over and over, Proverbs 2.6, For the Lord gives wisdom from His mouth come knowledge and understanding. Why? Because He's the source. Job 12.13, With God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. Why? Because He's its only source. Daniel 2.20, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, this is a doxology, for wisdom and might are His. Wisdom and might belong to others. No, to Him alone. James 1.5, James exhorts this, this, this church that he's writing to here, if any of you needs wisdom, you lack wisdom, you should ask whom? Politicians? Hmm? Philosophers? Our Congress? What a bunch of nut jobs. Our college professors? They don't even know what physical biology is anymore. You should ask God, who gives generous, generously to all without finding fault. What does that mean? To all who have mature faith. It's resting in Christ alone. And it will be given to you, he adds. So we know it comes from God. And really what Paul is saying is that it's just not going to be found. You're not going to find true wisdom among anyone else. You're not going to find it among the false religions. You're not going to find it among the pagan philosophers, secular professors, ungodly political leaders, which seems to be the majority these days, and so on and so forth. Instead, what he says is those who peddle the world's wisdom, they are not giving you true wisdom, even though that's what they claim, and you might be under the impression. But notice what he caps off this sentence or verse with. They are doomed to pass away. Well, if they're doomed to pass away, then I, I guess it's probably pretty smart not to go to them for wisdom. Because if I adopt their wisdom, I suppose I'll be equally doomed to pass away. They will pass away with their worthless, pagan, fleshly, carnal wisdom. So, the source for this incredibly and most precious commodity, because that's what the Bible puts it as, especially if you read Proverbs. Chapter 8, verse 11 speaks of it being worth more than rubies and emeralds and diamonds and all these things. The source for this most precious commodity, according to Scripture, is the infinite, all-wise God. That's where it comes from. True wisdom comes from Him and no one else. 
if the Corinthians were going to the Acropolis for true wisdom, they were not only wasting their time, but they were endangering themselves. This is why it's important for us to protect our eyes and our ears because we are surrounded by gibberish, garbage, wisdom, and everything else that is constantly trying to come in. And I'll tell you what, the, the Corinthians were missing the forest for the trees. They think that they can go find these things at the Acropolis, which is, is some really ridiculous thinking, while in fact they had a very powerful conduit for true wisdom serving in their church by the name of Apollos, who was a powerful expository preacher. That guy was, this, was the conduit by which God poured out his true wisdom into this church. And they're thinking, well, I just don't have a flavor for this anymore. Let's head over to the Acropolis and see what they have to say. What foolishness. That's what they were doing. Verse 7, he's continuing to describe the wisdom they impart, right? It's not of this world. It has to be imparted. And he says, but we impart, this is really interesting, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. What a verse. What a verse. He's describing a third character trait of true wisdom. What does he say? It is secret and hidden. He even adds this spectacular, mysterious line, decreed before the ages for our glory. The Greek word for secret is uh, apocrypto. Doesn't that sound like apocalyptic? It's kind of in the same wheelhouse or area uh, of that word, apocrypto. And what it means is to conceal or to hide. The Greek word for hidden is mysterion. Obviously, we get our word mysterious from that, uh, mysterious. And then lastly, the Greek word for decreed is prorizo, and it means to foreordain or to predestine. What is Paul saying through these amazing Greek words? Because that's the original language, right? He is saying that, that the true wisdom he and the other apostles impart is a concealed mystery that God predestined to reveal at particular times to a particular people. This true wisdom and concealed mystery is none other than Christ and Him crucified. That's 1 Corinthians 1.24 and back in chapter 2, verse 2. He's been talking about this mystery since he opened the letter back in the early part of chapter 1. If you're talking about Christ and Him crucified, Him resurrected, if you're talking about the gospel, you're talking about that mystery that has been hidden and is still concealed from a great many people. This is what he's teaching us here. Now, Paul was not referring merely to Jesus' like, regular physical life, right? Because we, we all know that Jesus came. We've heard about that. You can read about it in his history books. Most people know that that's a reality, even though they might not you know, want to acknowledge it or accept it. No, he's, he's, not, he's not presenting the life of ministry. There's nothing mysterious or hidden about the life of ministry. He's a savior who came down in dramatic fashion. People witnessed that. He lived a real, sinless, law-obeying life in front of the public's eye. There's nothing about his life that is hidden. So we can't be thinking about Jesus physically here. We have to be thinking about the spiritual implications of his work, 
We have to be thinking about how he came to die for sinners, and, and, and it's, it's a spiritual application of that. So Paul is not saying that, that Jesus' life and ministry is concealed. It wasn't. It was done in public. He was tried in public. He was executed in public. He was buried in public, and he rose in public. He exposed himself to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. The gals who followed and assisted in his ministry, Mary Magdalene and others, they saw him. The apostles at the time, the disciples at the time, minus the, you know, the, the defector, detractor, Judas, they all saw him. So everything about his life and ministry was, was disclosed. We're talking about the spiritual dimensions of his ministry, the spiritual accomplishments of his ministry crucifixion and resurrection. That's what we're talking about here. That's the part that is concealed. Not talking about his physical life. Paul was referring to the spiritual dimensions of Christ's crucifixion and death in particular here. That's what he's focused on. It is the spiritual dimensions of that work that are secret and hidden. Who are they hidden from? We have to ask this question. If they're actually hidden, the spiritual dimensions and application, if they're hidden and remain hidden even today, then who are they hidden from? Well, the immediate context, which is down in verse 8, says the rulers of this age. Who are the rulers of this age? This is an interesting term or phrase in the Greek. It is very broad, broad spectrum. It would be the earthly rulers, such as the, you know, and, and of course it would be the immediate context of the Roman emperor and, and the governor and all that, but it has a broader context, too, that transcends the first century and goes right up into today. So when we think of rulers of this age, think of these people, think of these types, earthly rulers, emperors, kings, princes, governors, presidents, prime ministers, religious rulers, obviously immediate context, Pharisees, Sadducees, and the Sanhedrin, and even today the papacy and everyone else. Angelic powers are included in this, such as the angels and archangels. Um, they, this mystery was hidden from them. It's no longer hidden from them. And I would just have to say that we know that it's not hidden from them any longer, because why else would the angels never tire of looking into the, this most mysterious and yet glorious manifestation of God's true wisdom, which is our salvation? Literally, in 1 Peter 1.12, it says they never tire of looking into these things. They were kept hidden from the angels for ages and ages. And then when God discloses it to them through the person and work of Jesus Christ, the angels are fascinated by this. I think it's because they keep looking at humans going, why would you save them? Right? And God's probably like, why would I save you? <laughs> because there's a salvation that applies to them as well. There's some that didn't fall. There's some that did fall. This mystery that's been revealed to them fascinates them to the point that they continue to look into it. We should be inspired by the angels. We should be fascinated by it and continue to look into it, right? Work out your salvation in what? Fear and trembling, which means get in there and study it and look at it and build up a good, healthy fear of the Lord. And it also includes, which is very interesting to me, demonic powers, not just angelic, but demonic, fallen angelic powers, demonic powers such as the devil and the demons. This mystery that we're speaking of here is still hidden from them, at least the spiritual implications of it. Think about it like this. If Satan had known and understood 
that the crucifixion and death of Christ would be instrumental in securing salvation for many of his children, because that's what unbelievers are called, Satan's children, right? 1 John 3.10, if Satan, if the devil had known, if he had known and understood and comprehended, if these things had been imparted to him, would he have followed through with the possessing, uh, the possession of, of Judas? Would he have followed through with these things that ushered in the crucifixion and death? There's no way. There is no way the devil would have been involved in an endeavor like that. Why would he, why would he engage Judas and the religious leaders and the political leaders in such bitter hatred and influence that he drove and built up in them, leading to the death and crucifixion of, leading to the crucifixion in Christ, just in the end to destroy himself? He would have never done that. If the devil had not had this mystery hidden to him, do you think he would have followed through with this work? Of course not. It's suicide. He followed through with it because he's a creature and is not omniscient and does not know all things. He thought that killing Jesus would remedy his problem, thus proving that this mystery was hidden from him, the spiritual implications. And now he has to deal with them if he understands them at all. And I think he probably does, and that's why he's rushing to destroy as much as he can. And he's always attacking the church and even trying to persuade the elect to leave the fold. Think about that. It's a very fascinating kind of area of, of theology. I would just simply say that, you know, we, we tend to think that Satan is ignorant and stupid. He's not. He's just limited in his understanding like other creatures. That's all. He's not stupid. He's not. He knows how to work you over better than you know yourself. In the broader context, so that would be the immediate context, all of those types of rulers, but in the broader context, which we see down in verse 14, I think that it also includes all natural people or all unbelievers, all of them. They're not necessarily rulers, but we know that spiritual truth is spiritually discerned. So apart from the spirit, the unbeliever cannot comprehend, understand, ascertain, apply spiritual truth. So this idea of rulers having this mystery hidden from them, it has to include unbelievers too, unless God chooses to illuminate this unbeliever. So I think in the broader context, it pretty much involves all unbelievers and, and, and demons and, and earthly rulers. It's, it's just about everybody except believers and the actual angels. And I think what's interesting is that he's kept this hidden from so many, but he does not keep this true wisdom hidden from his chosen people. What did Paul say? He decreed, God decreed before the ages to what? He doesn't say, but we know what the, the inference we can draw is to impart it to his chosen people. Why does he say here? For our glory. So God predestined in eternity past. I'm not preaching Calvinism, I'm preaching Bibleism, so pay attention. I'm not putting a Calvinistic spin on this. Paul is telling us very clearly that God predestined, elected, if you will, decreed in eternity past before anything was created to literally impart this wisdom to those whom he chose for salvation. That's what he did. That's what he's saying. This is an incredible verse. It's an incredible verse. I love it. God's eternal purpose has always been to impart his true wisdom to us 
for our sanctification, for our salvation, firstly, for our sanctification. And as Paul says here, for our glorification with the Son. 2 Thessalonians 2.14. I like what Thomas Schreiner wrote. He's a good good theologian. He said, the wisdom granted to believers, the wisdom God predestined them to grasp, eludes unbelievers, and particularly the rulers of this age. So you can see how it's all-inclusive with a specific application to the rulers of that particular age. And we, we know that it was hidden from them because what? They followed through with the crucifixion and death of Christ. Why would God, just stop and think about this, why would God keep this dimension, this aspect, this spiritual aspect of his true wisdom why would he keep that hidden from anyone why would he do that right see we tend to be under the impression that god wants to save everyone unilaterally unilaterally but but if god is in the business of keeping his true wisdom that leads to salvation hidden from people then then we've got a problem here with a universal atonement Somebody in here is probably thinking, I don't know who it would be, but oh, now he's going to start stoking the flames of Calvinism again. Here he goes. He's going into his five points. I'm not going into anything. If his wisdom is deliberately hidden from some, and it is a wisdom that brings about salvation, sanctification, and glorification, and it remains hidden, which Paul is teaching us, then we have to deduce We have to extrapolate. We have to draw from this reality here that he clearly has not intended to save all people unilaterally. We have no choice but to conclude that. Why would he keep this dimension hidden? Isn't it his goal to give this wisdom and to impart it to all so that all might be saved? Well, if this were the literal case, then salvation would be universal and there would be no reprobation or reprobate, no judgment, no wrath or hell. Why? Because all would be saved. If he did not, if he disclosed this to everyone unilaterally and equally, then everyone would literally be saved. Why? Because it is is imparted, granted, gifted, and given through the regenerating, illuminating power of the Holy Spirit. You will never comprehend this true wisdom in a spiritual way unless the Spirit does this work. And since the Spirit, not all people comprehend this wisdom, clearly the Spirit is not active in everyone's life in the same way. Amen? You you have to come to these conclusions. You can't go anywhere else with this. Anything else is, is just an addition to what the Scripture is clearly saying here. The fact that that judgment and, and hell and wrath and reprobation and these sorts of things exist, since they exist, it just, it just proves that God keeps this wisdom hidden from some because those whom it's hidden from go to these places and experience these sorts of things. That's what we have to deduce. We don't have a choice but to adhere to what Scripture clearly teaches. The existence of these things tells us that that very clearly this wisdom that we're focused on is not imparted to all. It is hidden from some. And we are forced to conclude that it was never his will, plan, or intention to literally save all. It just wasn't. And now that is a hard truth, but it is still a truth. And and, and one one of my gripes since I kind of started to discover these truths many, many years ago was it was how Christians respond to this. They get upset 
instead of rejoicing because they're among the elect. Talk about ungratefulness. I've never understood this. How is it that God, by His grace alone, predestined, elected, saves this person, and they turn around with a bitter spirit because they're mad because Joe down the street might not be saved? Go down and do your job and preach the gospel to Job. Maybe he's among the elect. Quit griping about God, how God runs his creation. Remember, he's the creator with a capital C. He can do with it what he wants to do with it. Anytime. When we butt against this biblical reality and truth, we butt against not just the sovereignty of God, but our loving Heavenly Father. It's kind of ridiculous, this game we play. And I played it for a few years here and there, and, you know, and others do it too. And I understand that God has His people in process. Some of these things are very difficult to grasp. We have been taught things through, some of us, many decades of teaching that just doesn't line up with what Scripture teaches. It is a hard truth, but it is still a truth. And God, quite plainly, has reasons for not disclosing His true wisdom to all unequivocally. And Paul supplies one in the very next verse. Aren't you thankful for that? that you don't have to sit here and listen to me try to give commentary on what God is doing when Paul has the scripture right here for us. Here is a reason why God does not impart this hidden, this hidden wisdom to all unilaterally. Listen to what he says in verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. <laughs> Paul tells the Corinthians that none of the rulers of this age understood the true wisdom of God concerning Christ's death. Why didn't they understand it? Well, if you slide down to the couple of verses down there, it's because it's spiritually discerned and given, and they weren't given that. And we know why they weren't given it, not just because the Spirit didn't apply it to them, but we know why they weren't given it. It was kept hidden from them, verse 7. Paul's explanation for why it was kept hidden is just incredible to me. He is saying here that if the devil and the, all the rulers of that age or of that time period, if the devil, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the high priests, the Sanhedrin, Pilate, the Roman soldiers, the centurions, and the common Israelites alike, if they had understood God's true wisdom concerning Christ's death, Paul says they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Just think about that right now. Now, I'm tempted to think that he's using some kind of a hypothetical example here because he understands the sovereignty of God, but he doesn't present it as a hypothetical. He speaks it as if it were just true. And I want you to think about the implications of this. All of these people involved in the life, death, and crucif you know, crucifixion and death and burial of Jesus Christ, none of them are involved in His resurrection. That's just the power of God. But all of these key players in Jesus' life and his, in the world's eyes, downfall and bloody death, if they had understood this wisdom, Paul is saying, they wouldn't have done what they did. Just think about the implications. What happens if Christ is not crucified and does not die on the cross? Well, then the final all-sufficient atoning sacrifice would not have been made. The justice and wrath of God would not have been fully satisfied. There would be no propitiation, no perpetual forgiveness of sin, no new covenant. It's gone. We would still be under the old covenant with its 613 commandments and gory sacrificial system with absolutely no place to offer legitimate sacrifices to God. Have fun with that. 
Adding insult to injury, there would be no debt-settling burial, no resurrection, no justification, no victory over sin, Satan, death, and hell, and no future resurrection, which means no glorified bodies for us. I got to have this, which I'm not overly happy with now. Well, work out. That's hard. I do work out. I do ice cream lifts, right? Corn dog curls, right? Just tough. It's just tough. I mean... Think of the implications of no crucifixion and death of Christ. It's staggering. It's absolutely staggering. We would be doomed. And yet God in His infinite wisdom kept His true wisdom concerning death, Christ's death, hidden from all these major players so they would continue to follow their deceitful hearts, their carnal desires, follow through with this horrendous scheme while simultaneously and unknowingly fulfilling what, does it say in Acts 2.23, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. If God had intervened through the Holy Spirit and illuminated these key players with this true wisdom, they don't crucify and kill the Lord of glory and all is lost. Now, he gives no reasons for why they wouldn't do that. It could have been well, we don't want to kill our Savior. It could have been, I mean, any number of reasons. He gives none because the reasons aren't important. He just says they wouldn't have done it. Therefore, it was entirely necessary for God to leave them as they were in their total depravity, in the darkness that they loved, John 3, 19. So they would follow through with the ugliest and yet most glorious deed ever known to man. The crucifixion of Christ. You see, God has His purposes for keeping His true wisdom concerning Christ crucified. He has His reasons for keeping that hidden from some. Because in the keeping it hidden, which He literally does not have to keep hidden. All He has to do is leave them as they are and they keep doing what they want. They're not changed. He has His reasons for doing that. And we, are, we, are, we mistakenly think that, that God only uses believers to accomplish His will. I think most of the time He's using more unbelievers than He has believers to accomplishing His will. Failed politicians and secular professors. God is so amazing and so wise and so powerful and so intimately involved in His creation that He is working through all things, the good, bad, and the ugly, for the good of those who love Him and are called according to a purpose, His purpose, but ultimately for His grand purposes. Everything is at His disposal. The believer, the unbeliever, the hateful neighbor, the loving neighbor, the cat in my yard. He's using it for my sanctification because I don't like cats in my yard. He uses everything to accomplish His will. His will is that intricate and that expansive it's so beyond our pay grade. It's literally mysterious. Certain aspects of it. He uses everything and everyone, every event, behind every human decision. God is moving and working. Even through the pagan decision, God is moving and working. He is using your cruddy boss. First of all, you get a paycheck from the guy. Stop and think, right? Perspective. He's using this heat. I buy more fans. He's using everything, literally. There isn't a sparrow that falls from the sky without him knowing. That sparrow fell because of him. 
He is involved in everything. He's not like the false god of Islam who's disconnected and sitting on some planet with a bunch of virgins. It's not what he's doing. He's, he's imminent. He's, he's here and he's active. He's in us. Oh, it's such a truth. It's such a reality. It's wonderful. I just want to shout from the rooftops. But I won't do it down here because there's some really interesting characters that might take me out. Doesn't just get you pumped up when you read stuff like this. This is amazing. He leaves them in the darkness they love so they will accomplish his purpose. And his purpose in that situation was Steve's redemption. Thank God he left them in the dark. If he doesn't leave them in the dark as they are, I don't get saved. You don't get saved. Quit railing against the sovereignty of God. Embrace it wholeheartedly and celebrate because you are the product of it. You are the product of it. If he isn't sovereign, we have nothing. Only a sovereign, all-powerful God can work all things for his glory and for our good. Our cancer, our sickness, our COVID, everything. This has been the area of study of my life for the last 10 years is the sovereignty of God, not just in salvation, that's a major emphasis, but in all things. And it is the most comforting truth and reality for me to know that Christ reigns right now. He's not coming to reign. He reigns. He reigns. He reigns. He is sovereign, dispelling nations, raising up nations, raising up and beautifying His bride. What wonderful, glorious truths. All of this preset to take place in God's timing through every character who's ever existed. God is intense. He is amazing. Now, I would just simply say that this is just big, difficult truth sometimes. It's tough for us to, to, to hang on to. And I think instead of just challenging it, because it doesn't really rub our flesh right to know that God is at that level, even in our salvation, it, we don't often respond to it rightly. And sometimes we reject this reality and truth altogether. And I think what we should do is just humbly accept it, and, but never pretend to comprehend it all. Don't act like you've got God nailed down in this regard. And I, I know this without a, fa just without a doubt, we should be like God in this regard. Take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Ezekiel 18, 23. But we can be grateful that God uses the wicked to accomplish His plan, or he, at least in the first century, He certainly did use the wicked to accomplish His plan of, his, plan of salvation for His chosen people, for His glory. You know, we can somehow rejoice in that. We don't rejoice in the destruction of the wicked, but we rejoice in the God who uses all means and measures and everything to accomplish His purpose. So we can, at the same time, grieve for those who perish because we want people to be saved. But we can also rejoice that God wastes nothing. We can also rejoice that hell actually brings God glory because it displays better than anything His justice. And we do have a just God and he continues to use the wicked today, not just in the first century to accomplish this redemption, at least aspects of it, right? He is using the wicked today, especially in our sanctification, and we should be equally grateful for that. Thank you, Lord, for putting me in difficult situations with difficult people. I hate it, but I know it's for my good, and it's somehow for the good of that person. So let me see you shine through this. Let me see you glorified through this, and God help me humble myself. Let's move to our last line, verse 9. 
But as it is, this is an interesting verse here. I don't think I've ever really understood this verse. I haven't paid much attention to it, that's why. Verse 9, but as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. So what Paul is doing now is he's already laid a case for the true wisdom of God, who imparts it, who receives it, what it's pertaining to, Christ crucified, how it's, it, rema- it was hidden in the first century so that God's will would be done. It remains hidden even in our century, the 21st century, so that God's will is done. It's not hidden from all. It's disclosed to his people, to true believers who have a singular faith in Christ alone, right? We've learned all this. And now Paul, what he does is he appeals to the Old Testament to demonstrate that God's true wisdom, it has to be revealed to human beings. It cannot be obtained in this context at the Acropolis or anywhere else. It can't even be obtained in in a Jewish synagogue. Human beings have not conceived the things God has prepared for those who love him. One of the puzzling things in this verse is the source of the Old Testament text cited. And I think the best candidate is probably Isaiah 64.4. It says, From of old no one has heard or perceived by ear, by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. I think that's what Paul is quoting or paraphrasing. Now Isaiah, I had to do a little research on Isaiah 64. It contains a prayer for mercy asking the Lord to show mercy to Israel and to come down and make known his presence to the people. That's the context of Isaiah 64, where Paul draws this text. And for Paul, this request and petition for God to come down and make himself known and be with his people, that was a prophetic request. Paul sees it as fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's why he's quoting it. That's why he is quoting it here. God has come down from heaven and made himself known. Remember, it was Israel making this request. I would simply say that God has, in Paul's view, God has come down and made himself known to true Israel. What is true Israel? All believers for all time. Not just someone who was born a Jew. People who are born a Jew might have an outward circumcision with no heart circumcision, thus making them not a true Jew. The true Jews or the true Israelites are all who have believed. We are all dis- if you believe in Christ alone, you are a descendant, a spiritual descendant of Abraham, the father of many nations, not just Israel. Just think about this. God has come down as the Israelites wanted way back when. In the first century, at the turn of the first century, God does come down as Jesus Christ. That is God in the flesh. Jesus Christ, God of the flesh. The incarnation, He comes down to make His presence known to the people, to true Israel, all believers for all time, in and through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting in the high priestly prayer in John, in particular in verse 17, 26, Jesus said this as He's praying. He said this to the Father. Father, I have made you known to them, speaking of the disciples, and pretty much all believers for all time, really, it's broader. And he says, and I will continue to make you, and this is before he dies, and I will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. John 17, 26, what a verse. I have come down to make God, you, Father in particular, the whole Godhead, but in particular you, known to 
these men here and all believers for all time. That's what Jesus is, is teaching his disciples as he prays. The incarnation, life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ were all revelatory expressions of God's presence with his people, but most of all, God's love for his chosen people. He and the fact is, we're talking about what he prepared in eternity past. This is something that he equally pre uh, prepared for his people in eternity past. At the and then, then, so if we fast forward to the first century, at the appointed time, the Father sends Christ, Galatians 4.4, 4, to accomplish all that was prepared for Christ to accomplish in advance. All these things that they, at, the, at, the, at the eternal council, when God met with the, you know, with the Trinity, when, he met with the, when the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit met together and discussed the Father's plan of redemption, these things were agreed upon. Christ had things that were given to Him to, to accomplish, to come and to become a person and to live a perfect life and to do all the things that He did. And then at the appointed time, Christ enters into the world, Galatians 4, 4, and he accomplishes everything that was prepared for him in advance. Why? Ultimately, to express God's great redeeming love to all believers, past, present, and future. Now, the eyes, ears, and hearts of unbelievers, they don't see the cross the way that we do. They see it as the degradation of Jesus Christ. It's a humiliation of Christ, I think, for both unbelievers and believers. But they see it as, well, they destroyed and got rid of him. That was good. That's how the unbeliever sees the cross. They don't relish in the cross. They don't honor the work that Christ did there. They, don't wear, they wear cross necklace, necklaces as a fashion statement. It has no spiritual meaning to them. And this is what Paul is talking about here. These things have no value to the unbeliever, but to us believers, what do we see when we look at a cross? We see what the unbeliever can't see, the true wisdom of God as displayed in Christ crucified. Do you see the difference? That's the difference between having that true wisdom hidden from the unbeliever. They just see a wooden thing. And the believer who has been illuminated and who understands the spiritual implications and applications and sees the cross vastly different from the unbeliever. Amen? You can see how this works. This is what he's talking about. What do I see when I look at this cross? I see the deep, unfathomable love of a heavenly father for me. What does the unbeliever see? A crossbar. And this one looks good because it's got nice stain on it and railroad spikes and a nice light behind it. How fancy. has no spiritual value to them at all. None. But to me, it has a lot of spiritual value. It's very significant. This is the difference between hidden and non-hidden wisdom. God prepared all of these things in the past for us and at the appointed time to send Christ and at the appointed time much later in our lives to reveal these things to us for our glory. That's what Paul is talking about. Now, here's the deal. What do we see when we look at the cross once more? We see what God lovingly prepared for us in eternity past. And we also see what God accomplished for us 2,000 years ago, roughly. What I envision when I look at a cross is the unblemished lamb of God from heaven's pasture, nailed, bleeding, dying, and forsaken on that splintery altar for our terrible sins. That's what I see. 
And what happens when we envision what Christ did there and him dying and suffering? And Our hearts are filled with love for God and gratitude. This is all built into what we see in the cross because we have this true wisdom. And what do we do? We look at the cross, we remember what Christ did, the person and work. We, our hearts are filled with love and we pour that love out in adoration, in worship. It manifests itself in some kind of worship to him, some rejoicing. Now here's the deal. If this is how we see and respond to Christ's crucifixion and death, really to the cross, then that is evidence that God has illuminated and imparted his true wisdom to us. Right? If that's what you see when you see, if that's what you think of, if that's what you remember, if that's what you value when you look at a cross, then that's evidence that you have the true wisdom because you understand you're putting value on its spiritual implications, not its physical implications. And then the opposite would be true. If this is not how we see the, and respond ultimately to Christ's crucifixion and death to the cross, then it is evidence of the opposite, right? That we are still in darkness and unbelief. If we only see a fashion item, if we only see wood and nails, if that's all it means to us, then the true wisdom of God remains hidden to us. And we are still in our sins, still in the darkness we love, still in the depravity we cherish, still in the flesh and carnality that is our heart's desire. Do you understand what I'm saying to you this morning? How you view the crucifixion and death of Christ determines where you're at spiritually. Now, I'm not saying that every time you see a cross, you know, you have to fall down and fall prostrate in the middle of the mall because some guy walked by with one with diamonds on it and all that. Look, a cross. Hey, you know, we're not getting weird. What does the cross represent to you? Your peace with God, your forgiveness of sin, your liberty and freedom in Christ, your deliverance from hell and judgment and wrath. What does it represent to you? Because that will show you where you're at spiritually. And if it has no spiritual implication, you don't value it, then obviously this wisdom that we speak of is sadly still hidden from you. But I will say this, just for clarification, it's really your fault that it's hidden from you. Well, God keeps it hidden. Like I said earlier, he really doesn't have to. Your disposition is to reject it. It remains hidden to you because you don't want to embrace it. You don't want to accept it. You don't want to acknowledge it. Now, I will admit that the only people who do acknowledge and accept are those who have been moved by the Spirit and transformed by the Spirit and all that. I'll never deny that truth. But at the end of the day, even though God keeps this wisdom hidden from some, at the end of the day, they're still judged for their sins and rejection of Christ. Now, that's one that's above my pay grade and hard to figure it out, but it's a truth too. So what I say from this pulpit always is God is sovereign, only He can save you. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ right now. Do it. I can't make the decision. No, you don't want to make the decision. Do it. But if we do not value the cross work of Christ, we're in big trouble spiritually. We're still in darkness. This mystery, this mysterious wisdom is still hidden from us. And I would say this, only the Holy Spirit can illuminate us so that we can understand and delight in the true wisdom of God. This is very clear down in verse 10. The Holy Spirit is he's God and he works supernatural power. 
to remove the scales from our eyes, the plugs from our ears, the stony heart in our chest, all these things that they're, they're really just things that keep us from seeing and savoring the power and wisdom of God in Christ crucified. He's the one that does this work. And I would simply say this, if you are in this room today and you have listened intently and carefully, and maybe you realize that you aren't in Christ because you don't value his work on the cross, you're realizing this, and now you, you feel inside of you, you, you sense inside of you a desire for the cross and a desire for Christ, guess what? That is evidence that the Holy Spirit is working in you. So it may only be a work of the Holy Spirit, undoubtedly, through the sovereign God, but He does it all the time. And if you now have a different kind of perspective after studying this text and you say, well, I don't want to be in the darkness. I, I, don't, I, I want to know the true wisdom of God. If you say you want to know the true wisdom of God, it sounds to me like you're already beginning to comprehend it, which proves that the Holy Spirit is working in you. It really does. If you desire the things of God, you didn't come up with that on your own. And guess what? If that is you, guess what your task is? The Spirit is working, but you do have a responsibility and task at this moment. And it's, it's very simple. It really is. We don't make it hard at this church or anywhere else. Following Christ is hard, but at that initial point, it's all the work of God in your heart. And it is, of course, as you follow Him, the work of God in your heart. But following Him, I think, is much more difficult. This task for you, if this is you, is very simple. Simply exercise the grace-given gifts that are being given to you right in this moment. And what are they? Repentance and faith. Turn from your unbelief and put your trust in the one who stretched out his arms and died to pay for your sin. Trust in him. If you do this, you prove that God has been sovereignly gracious to you and is now imparting His grace and His mercy and this wisdom and His Spirit all at once. He's pouring Himself into your heart. Respond! Respond! Turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Amen? You know, this is tough stuff, but, but it's, also, it's also simple. I'm not much of a fan of Tim Keller anymore. He's gotten kind of weird politically and everything else. But I tell you, he said something about 20 years ago that was very wise. And he said, the gospel is, is, is very interesting. And it, it, it is so simple. It's like a swimming pool, right? I've said this. I've used this illustration. It's like a swimming pool with a very shallow end where a toddler can splash around, but it has a deep end where an elephant can swim. And the gospel is simple in that Jesus came to live a perfect life, to die an atoning death, to be buried and to be risen from the grave for our salvation. And if we put our trust in Him, we are saved, we are saved, we are saved to the uttermost. That's the simplicity of it trying to figure out election and predestination, which I seem to be an expert up here on many times because I don't carry myself right with less humility and more declaration, but trying to get my mind around these truths, it, it just, it's bigger than me. God is bigger than me. But I think He has revealed enough for us to get a taste.
But the gospel is a pool. It's shallow and it's deep. And we have talked about it today in some of its deeper aspects with this hidden, mysterious, true wisdom of God and, and with Him decreeing from eternity past to, to give it to and to impart through faithful teachers to His people, to the mature and, and even to those who are unregenerate, to regenerate them and give it to them and, and to continue to pour it out on us as we do ministry and life. We've covered so much. Again, just repent and trust in Christ. And from this point forward, you can begin to rejoice over the work of Christ with the rest of us. And I would say walk in the Spirit's power and seek to bring glory to God in all and through all things. Because so often we we invite people to trust and we don't tell them that it's an ongoing trust with an ongoing sanctification and an ongoing glorification of God and an ongoing wrestling match with the flesh and a, a battle against sin and, and we become soldiers in a war primarily against ourselves. Well, I'm doing all this demonic battle. Battle your flesh. It's got a hold of you. This is the Christian life. It's not just a decision. It is daily decisions for Christ. Christ. 